0: Welcome back to another episode of Stern Chats. I'm Justin Katches. And I'm Devna Shukla. Devna Shukla, how are you doing? Good, how are you? I am so excited. You know why? Why? Because today we have Jeff Ramsey, co-founder and chief innovation officer of eMarketer, a subscription-based marketing research company. Jeff was the keynote speaker at the NYU Graduate Marketing Association's conference this year on unraveling big data.
1: Jeff is a guru in the marketing and advertising industry and a well-known public and inspirational speaker. He's such a wonderful storyteller, and it was so clear how passionate he is about data and the industry today.
0: I heard he's a magician, too. Can't wait to see what he has up his sleeve. What do you say, Debna? Are you ready to start the show?
1: Let's flip the switch and let's go.
0: Cue that music.
1: From New York University Stern campus, this is Stern Chats, the podcast that tells the hidden stories between the lines of someone's resume. In the interest of serving the Stern community, building relationships, and unlocking important life lessons, we present these stories to a wider audience.
0: Welcome back to another episode of Stern Chats. I'm Justin Catches. And I'm Devna Shukla. We are so excited to have Jeff Ramsey, co-founder and chief innovation officer of eMarketer in the studio today. Jeff, thanks for being here. It is a pleasure. We always love to
1: start off with an introduction to learn more about our guests. Would you give us your 30-second elevator pitch, please?
2: Oh, my gosh. The elevator's going down, and I'm freaking out. (laughs) Um, uh, Okay. Uh, We're in the digital world. It's a global, complicated world of looking at different trends of what people are doing online, how do you reach them, how much time they're spending with various channels and how they're buying stuff, and marketers are... Frazzled trying to keep up with these consumers as they flip from device to device. And we help provide data and trends from 3,000 plus sources so that you can figure out what's going on real fast and make actionable decisions based on that data and information. That sounds awesome. And I can't wait to hear more about you, marketing. That your was marketer. too long as an elevator pitch, but never mind.
0: So, what about your personal elevator pitch? Who are you? Where did
2: you come from? Well, I started out as a child. That's a, a borrowed a <laughs> line from Bill. <laughs> uh, I, I, uh, Actually traveled a lot uh, when I was uh, growing up, so I am, uh, was born a Canadian citizen. Mm-hmm. Um, Where about? Uh, I was uh, born in Vancouver. You a I, hockey I, fan? I, you know, the, the thing is, as my wife says, because she was, she's from Montreal, and she says that I'm, not, I'm, I'm a fake Canadian, because I left when I was four and a half, so I really don't culturally know what's going on. Mm-hmm. I don't know about hockey. I can't tell you what's politically happening there. <laughs> I do know that they just legalized pot. But I saw I think that. everybody there go. saw that. Nationwide, so, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. So they're a little progressive, I guess. Um, certainly, British Columbia was always kind of leaning that way anyway. But I left when I was four and a half, grew up in the Midwest. As I like to say, I, I grew up in Michigan and Wisconsin. Those were my Wonder Bread years. Uh, I did spend <laughs> That's a great two, phrase. <laughs> yeah. Well, th- you know, Eight Ways of Growing Up, or I forget what the commercial was. But uh, I also spent two years in uh, England, living in Birmingham in the mid-'70s. Uh, not the greatest place to go, but I had a really good education there. Mm-hmm. Then we went back to Michigan. Then we went to Palo Alto in the days just as this is really dating myself. Just as Microsoft was getting started, uh, oh, wow. so this was 1977, my senior year. So I essentially graduated my high school year with a bunch of kids that I didn't know, but. All that traveling prepared me for all the traveling that I do in my job now. So I'm actually grateful that we moved around a lot because going to different places, meeting different people, experiencing different cultures, different food is, is like second nature to me now. That's, That's incredible. Awesome.
0: Um, quick aside, have you ever seen the show Peaky Blinders? I have
2: not. Because it's based in Birmingham. No. Netflix, check it out. Oh, my gosh, I have to see that. <laughs> they have such a crazy accent there. I come from Birmingham, I do. <laughs> I can pull that out. Uh, That's pretty good. It. So what inspired you to go into marketing? How did you end up a Stern? What was, what was growing up uh, like? Oh, oh, my gosh. Well, my father, true confessions here, actually was also a professor at NYU. and uh, of economics. And as I was just saying to the audience uh, where I was just speaking, is that my father was so obsessed with economics uh, at the dinner table, he could relate economics to sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And I said, Dad, I really don't need to hear your vision of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Just keep it to yourself. Thank you very much. (laughs) Um, But uh, how did I get into marketing? Actually, I quizzed the audience that I just spoke to, the, the MBA students. I said, I've had three careers in my life. Can you guess what the common denominator is? So my first career, even before I was in college, was a professional magician. Not musician, but magician. So I was doing tricks. Mm -hmm. And I was basically being paid to work in restaurants and so on. Loved it. It was a very creative exercise. Incidentally, this is just kind of an aside, that's how I also got into market research because I had to convince the restaurant proprietor that my service of providing this magic was going to be beneficial to him or, or, and to his clients or his patrons because I was asking him to pay me as opposed to working off tips. I didn't want to ask people for tips. I wanted to be paid you know, from my work after the fact by the proprietor. And so I created a little mini questionnaire that asked questions like, did you enjoy the experience of having a magician at your table? And of course, I left plenty of room on this mimeographed thing. This is back in the 70s, -hmm. right? For people to write all kinds of comments. And they Mm said, oh, yes, I love the experience. And they would go on about how wonderful it was for them. And then I would ask the second question, or the second question on the sheet was, would this magic act encourage you to come back to this restaurant, which of course is repeat purchase. So the proprietor wanted to see that people were willing to come back. Mm -hmm. And the third question was, would you be encouraged by having this magician to invite other people to come to this restaurant. And a lot of people said, yeah, so that's viral marketing. Um, So I learned market research way back when. So my first career was a magician. My second career, I spent 17 years in the advertising world working at New York ad agencies. And I have the marks on my back to prove it. Uh, (laughs) And then the third profession is the business that I co-founded, which is eMarketer, which is looking at all the statistics and data about digital trends. So what is the common denominator there? I'll I'll leave a beat, and then nobody's going to think it or they don't want to think it. And the answer is manipulation. And Mm -hmm. if you think about it, magic, manipulation, you get that. Advertising, well, we're manipulating minds to some extent. And then, of course, statistics, you can manipulate statistics to basically say whatever you want. Mm -hmm. Now, this doesn't mean that I don't want you to draw the wrong conclusions of uh, who I am, but it is funny that there's that kind of common denominator there. What was your go-to trick? I'm curious. Probably one of my go-to tricks was taking a fan of cards out of thin air from my hands. I worked, I was like the geek of my day because we didn't have digital devices. Mm -hmm. So I went to the library and I learned how to do tricks and I spent hours and hours, often in front of the TV, practicing sleight of hand, like palming cards or coins and so on. And so I would love to create a fan of cards, drop them into a hat, create another fan. And it was like seemingly endless Mm -hmm. and it, it required a tremendous amount of practice, uh, but it's interesting because I can go after, I don't know, you know. I'm, going back, I'm 59, so I could go back to when I was about 12 years old, and those muscles in my hands still remember what to do.
1: Wow. I was going to ask if you ever like perform party tricks now, at, like a I,
2: cocktail hour. I, in fact, just did a magic show the night before last, and I do a magic show every year for our staff. We've been in business for 20-plus years, mm-hmm. and it's a tradition now at the holiday party that Jeff Ramsey, co-founder, does a magic show. Do you have a stage name? <laughs> you know... I always have to come up with something uh, uh, something that sounds uh, foreign and interesting. I so mean, Jeff I, I Ramsey's just, a
1: pretty great name, I have is, to say myself, it's, it's, So, it's, like,
2: I, I usually go Italian, so I go uh, ra- the great Ramzini. The, the great Ramzini. Ram- Ram- <laughs> yeah. It sounds pretentious, but <laughs> you know, it's part of the act.
1: We're curious about your time at Stern, and you've had all these really interesting careers and, and different passions of yours. What was it like to be here at Stern, and how did Stern impact your passion and also focus for what you're doing as well.
2: Sterna actually was a fabulous experience. Um, The the, the truth be told when my father uh, became a professor here or got the professorship, he then soon moved into uh, becoming the chairman of the economics department. And back then if uh, you had that position, any of your children who got in to NYU could get a free ride. Well, I didn't understand back then how important that was, <laughs> and certainly school's become a lot more expensive because I've had four go through the, tra- or three of my four go through the transom, and I know what that what that expense looks like, so mm-hmm. um, I fortunately never had to have any debt, but I did get in, and, and my dad, jokes routinely now. He says, you know, son, uh, NYU's changed a lot since you went to school. You'd probably never get in. (laughs) So here I am talking to MBA students, so I I did okay. Uh, uh,
1: I hope you'll send him a picture of you being the keynote at our uh, marketing conference today. I'll say,
0: take this, Dad. Yeah. So, how did marketing come about? I mean, it sounds like you had this kind of prior experience in in magic, but at Stern in particular, was there anything that prepared you for the field or or, or featured interest?
2: Absolutely. Um, At the very beginning, going into college, having been a magician and having enjoyed the creativity of that, I was entertaining the possibility of being a professional magician for life or an actor. These things all were enticing and exciting and so on. But then I thought, statistically what percent of actors think uh, think uh, New York City what percent of actors actually apply their trade as opposed to you know being a waiter or doing some other job just to pay the bills and then I thought what percent of magicians uh, actually make it and, and and have a living and they don't have to supplant that living with something else uh, and I know many magicians who are far better than I was that and they have to have a second job so I basically decided, you know what, I'm going to go to business school. But I had no idea what I was going to do. It turns out I was really good at math, not as good as my father, who's like a brilliant statistician. Sorry, statistician. And I'm sure but, he lets you know, right? Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, you know what, when I was uh, in uh, junior high school, I remember the experience of carefully walking into his study, not to interrupt him, and he's sitting there with his pipe and he's working on an equation that's literally – an entire notepad long. Like, you know, he, I don't know how he keeps, retains all that entire equation in his head. And I would say, I'm having trouble with my math. Can you help me with a, one of these solu- one of these problems? And he would say, oh, I can show you 16 different ways to do this. And I'm like, how about you show me the easy way? <laughs> and in fact, if you could show me the answer, that would be even better. <laughs> um, so it was always asking for trouble to go in and, and ask him a, a question about math. But I did pretty well at math. And most of the kids that graduated in 1981, I think it was 70 percent, went into finance. That's what you did back then. This was the age of Wall Street, and and uh, what was the the name of that movie? Uh, the, the Wall, Wall, Wall Street. The Wall- yeah. well, no, no, it was even yeah. before that. That was like the oh, 90s. Wall Street. Wall Street. It yeah. was yeah. called yeah. just Wall Street. Yeah. And they had Gordon Gecko. Gordon Gecko had mm-hmm. that phone that was like the size of a of a bus. Yeah, <laughs> um, <laughs> walking along and, the beach in the famous <laughs> scene. Yeah. Exactly, and and so. I was struggling because I didn't want to go into finance. I have no problem with numbers and so on, but I just didn't want to go into finance. So, I said, "I'm just going to have to keep trying different courses and see what what bites." I, I took an acting class. Never had so much fun in my life. But I reminded myself, Jeff, how many actors make it? So let's try something else. You took an actor class. You took an acting class at Stern. I did. Uh, it wow. was part of the. Th- I think a freshman freebie I got, uh, so you know I had you know a couple of electives, and mm-hmm. somehow I, I, I was able to do that. Maybe they've changed it now. <laughs> anyway, so we'll look into it. We'll let you but know. So, so in my junior year, this was a seminal moment. I took an advertising course with a professor at the time uh, who was Sam Craig. He was here for he was an institution for a very long time, and it was a perfect combination of statistics, because you have to look at numbers, and particularly today in in digital marketing, I mean, my Mm -hmm. gosh, if you don't know numbers, you're not going to get very far. And human psychology, which I was always interested in, which kind of relates back to the magic, Mm -hmm. right? And there was this creative element to it, because you have to create an ad that's going to resonate with consumers. And there was also a market research side to it that I later would find out was definitely uh, uh, something I was interested in. And so I fell in love with this course. And basically within the class, we were put into a bunch of groups to compete with each other like we were mini ad agencies. And I just fell in love with that kind of case study approach. And I felt like I was flourishing. And I said, I determined at that point, I'm going into advertising. But of course, the year I graduated in 1981, there was 10.8% unemployment and there was no jobs available. And so I had to spend an entire like three or four months in the summer looking for a job and finally found a a small agency in Queens that had about 25 people in it. And within three months of me joining it, it folded. And so I had to start my journey all over again. But that's that's the hard knocks way of life. And actually, that helped me uh, learn perseverance.
1: So once that ad agency folded, then what happened? What did you do then then next?
2: I developed a campaign for myself. I said if I'm going to be in advertising, I'm going to create or market or create a campaign or market myself. So I created a one-page ad which basically had my photo on it and a positioning statement for why you wanted to hire this guy because he had the perfect combination of looking at data and trends and understanding where they're going and developing insights and then coming up with a positioning that would put a brand uh, ahead of its competitors. Um, I have no idea what I said back then but it did get me a lot of interviews. So is that different than a resume drop?
0: It's different,
2: yeah. It's different in that it wasn't just a, I mean, I I attached a resume too. Mm -hmm. But what caught people's attention was I actually developed an ad for myself as opposed to here's their standard cover letter. Mm -hmm. Please look at this you know, these bullet points in my uh, resume and see how that lines up with the uh, thousand other resumes that you're looking at. I yeah. wanted to be a different person in the pack. And one of the ways to do that or differentiate myself was to create an ad for myself.
0: Yeah, you got to stand out. And it's interesting you compare it to the way that we put our resumes together at Stern and they have a very specific template with this very specific style, Mm -hmm. with a very specific font
2: and spacing. So that it looks exactly like everybody else. Every single one looks (laughs)
0: exactly the same. And you're really discouraged from being a little more creative and being a little more entrepreneurial and and coming up with a different
2: way to stand out. So it's glad to see that it it, it paid dividends. And I actually put the ad in an envelope and put a stamp on it. I, uh, you guys know what that is? Direct um, mail. Yeah, yeah <laughs> direct mail. And I and I would mail it to the the owner of the uh, ad agency or the the uh, CEO. And I assume this landed you a job at some point. It did. Then my first break came at TBWA. What well, is that? What's that? What is that? TBWA. Um, it doesn't exist as that anymore. I like think it's TBWA slash Shyatt Day. I mean, you know the, the mergers and acquisitions that go on the agency yeah. world, mm-hmm. which is one of the reasons why I got out after 17 years. Um, but the funny story was, well, it wasn't so funny at the time, but I had convinced the owners of the company that I was going to be a good hire. Mm-hmm. And they then put me under a boss Um, and this is probably one of the most important lessons I learned because the fact of the matter is everybody talks about mentorship. I like to mentor people. A lot of good mentors have made a huge difference in my life. Mm -hmm. But you know what? At the end of the day, and I've heard other people say this too, you actually learn more from a bad boss Mm -hmm. than you do from a good boss. What you learn from a bad boss is how not to do something. And I had a really bad boss. I'm not not going to mention her name, probably because I've forgotten it (laughs) at this point, but it doesn't matter. The point is she was so bad... I thought I was a pretty good writer and I had done very well in writing uh, aspects of uh, working at NYU and in, in some of my previous jobs. And so when I wrote my first memo and gave it to my boss, she looked at it and then had a smirk on her face and then ripped it up in front of me and says, well, I guess you don't know how to write. I'll write the memos from now on. So that was my introduction to my boss. Wow. She also had a dossier on everybody in the company that she was trying to get fired, and and eventually, um, because she had a bee in her bonnet, um, she got me fired. But which ended up being the most wonderful opportunity that I could have ever had, because meanwhile, the owners of the firm had put me through a boot camp uh, situation that was being put on by the Four A's. This is the uh, Association American Association of advertisers something like that it's called the four As basically mm-hmm. and the idea was that they had 50 people uh, all from different ad agencies some people were creative some people were research some people were account managers like me and they pit us in in groups of four or five against each other over a three or four months period to come up with a campaign that you had to justify uh, not only orally but also with this big huge massive deck and so I, I learned a very valuable lesson. We won, uh, but I uh, also realized I was so crazed, having been let go from this this company working for this woman. I was so crazed to, to succeed that I basically alienated all my teammates by doing all the work, or if, if their work wasn't up to scratch, I just did it myself and I worked till three or four or five in the morning
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, and I redid their work. And so I kind of alienated them because I was just, like, micromanaging and taking care of everything because I was so determined to win. And then when I went to the award ceremony and we found out we won, they were all kind of distanced from me. Mm-hmm. And I went home and I just bawled. I said, oh, my gosh. If this – I've just – killed myself for three or four months and all I've done is alienate people. What is the point? Mm -hmm. And then I started rethinking my career and thinking, you know what, this is a people business. If you're going to be successful in this, you've got to learn how to get the best out of other people. And I have changed my ways now so that um, I'm a much better leader and I make sure that I I, I look at everybody's specific talents and I make sure we bring them to bear and that we give people a chance to succeed. That's
0: great. I mean, I'm so happy you had kind of like that self-reflective moment. Mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of people here also go through something like that where, you know, you're kind of in this business school atmosphere Mm -hmm. and to be successful, you have to rely on one another and you have to give as much as you receive.
2: Yeah. Which is why I I mentor so many people because I know what it's like to get a break and to have somebody give you a little bit of guidance Mm -hmm. because I think we all have specific gifts. And I tell people, you know, sometimes it's really obvious. I'm going to be a doctor. I'm going to be a dentist. And I went to school with a lot of friends of mine who knew exactly what they wanted to be. And I had no idea. But what you can do, you don't have to be like the, the biggest expert in any one thing in math or whatever it is. But if you can combine a confluence of different skill sets, and put them together in a unique array that is, makes you you, mm-hmm. then you can actually succeed in s- things that other people can't do because you put together these things in, in a certain way. And I ended up, when I got laid off the first time, uh, or I guess it was the second time, in the uh, rec- media recession of 91, I've been through like three or four recessions, so, you know, the Great Recession was nothing compared to these. And you've got the scars to prove it. Uh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. But I, I was off for three and a half months, which is nothing compared to like a lot of people uh, over the course of 30 years to be laid off for three and a half months. And I read the book, What Colors My Parachute?, and basically what it was doing was g- taking me through an exercise of examining, being self-aware, who am I? Go back to that second grade uh, play where you felt like you were alive for the first time on stage, whatever it was, and you start to understand what you're really good at, what you're passionate about, and then you end up putting together this kind of synthesis of the best perfect job that you could, you know, job description that you can, and I looked at it at the end of three and a half months, and I finally had gotten a job, and I looked at it, and I go, oh, no, this was like developed by a a committee that was on drugs, because it made no sense. It said that I I wanted a job where I'm synthesizing great amounts of information, and I'm doing a lot of number crunching, but I'm not doing finance, and I'm on stage, and it's like I was a circus guy while I'm also an actuarialist. I mean, it made no sense, and I'm like, I had to shelve it, and it wasn't until six years later that I realized I had essentially written the job description for myself, which is what I do now, um, which uses every single one of my talents and none of the talents that I don't have. Like, I'm a really lousy manager. I majored in marketing and management, and I've been pretty good with marketing in terms of positioning and so on, and I got an A in every management course at Stern, but. Actually doing it in real life is a very different thing. And I learned that there were way better managers than me. I'm a good leader, I'm just not a good manager. So you have to have humility as well. What's the difference between the two, a great leader and a great manager in your perspective? Sure. Um, A manager is somebody who's really good at executing on a vision and getting others and other other people and other resources together and combine them in a way that produces the most effective result with the most efficiency. I'm not so good at that. It turns out I'm much more of a creative person and that going back to the magic days as an example, and I'm a good leader because I have a very clear vision and I'm also very much a believer in once again, everybody's got different skills to bring to the party. And so I, I lead by example and I lead by showing this is what we're trying to accomplish and setting a a really big, bold goal and saying, I don't care how you get there but this is what we, what we need to achieve. And if you fire, hire, sorry hire the right people and you give them the right direction and you get out of their way and you give them the proper resources, they will do amazing things that you could never do alone. One of my uh, uh, mantras that I learned at Ogilvy & Mather, which is one of the agency I, I worked at, uh, was that you should hire people that are smarter than yourself. Most mm-hmm. people don't want to do that because they want to be the smartest person in the room. Mm-hmm. But the fact of the matter is if you hire someone smarter than you, well, guess what? You look better because then you're a better manager. Yeah, if you're and the- you get more stuff
0: done. Yeah, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room.
2: Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yes.
0: So uh, we we talked a little bit about writing this job description, and that was kind of the genesis of the idea for eMarketer. Can you talk about what it was like to actually found that business?
2: Sure. Um, by accident. So here's the story. I was getting a little uh, frustrated with the ad business. Um, it was getting very political. Uh, this was the time of a lot of mergers and... What was also happening at the time in the, I, I guess it was the mid-80s to the early 90s, is that the media component of agencies was splitting off. So it used to be that media and creative and research all lived under one house, and so you went to a, an agency, and they did the creative, they did the research, they, did, they placed the media, they did everything all under one roof. And then they started separating everything out. Okay, So that was frustrating, because I thought they needed to be connected. Right, because if you're going to do an ad it counts where that ad goes but it also counts what that ad is and you can't, you can't s- separate those things out really, I, I don't think um, I guess people do but uh, there's kind of been a backlash going back to that but basically the point was I was getting frustrated with that of everything being separated out the competition was intense and I felt like there were some skills that I had that I wasn't using but then I thought Maybe it's also because of the politics and the the bureaucracy of working for a big agency. So I said, you know what, I'm gonna give this one more shot. It's been about 17 years. Let me join a small boutique ad agency where I can be a bigger fish in a smaller pond and see what that looks like. And it turns out I was working with a couple of guys, and there was probably about 15 of us, but the couple of guys were the two, kind of the agency uh, founders. And I actually became very successful because I was given a break to work on uh, some big accounts and actually do my own thing without other people you know, getting in my way, and I was just given some breathing space. Mm-hmm. At this time, this is the mid-90s, so what's happening in the mid-90s, some of you may know, is that uh, the Internet was coming around. And I had seen examples of the internet. They had AOL, Prodigy, uh, and CompuServe uh, demos uh, at agencies. You're know, you, you you're, you're looking at the future, but the future didn't look too bright. I was not impressed. And I didn't think this internet thing was going anywhere. But meanwhile, the founder of the agency was really smitten with this whole internet thing. And at that time, we were building websites for our clients. Every, web, every client back then needed to have a website. Why? because their competitors had one. It's like, why do we need a mobile app? Because their competitor has one, mm-hmm. so we need to run and go build one. So we were building these websites, and then this person, uh, the, this the, one of the co-founders, who's now long since retired, said, well, why don't we build a website that is gonna be like the business portal for business people to understand what's going on with this whole internet thing, because it seems to be taking off like wildfire. And I said, well, again, I'm not sure this internet thing is going anywhere, but I'll tell you what. I'll do all this research on the Internet, and as I'm doing the research, I'll essentially—the word blog didn't exist back then. I'll write articles, but it was essentially blogging. Mm -hmm. I blogged, and I put all this content where I was scrutinizing all of this data and information about how big the Internet was, how fast it was growing, how was commerce changing as a result of people buying stuff online— were the rules of marketing changing? And I wrote about this stuff, and lo and behold, we saw all this traffic go there. I said, well, that's interesting. Um, and so then the the partner of the firm says, so we need to make some money out of this. I'll tell you what. All these other companies out there like Gartner and IDC are writing these reports, mm-hmm. and people are snapping them up like crazy. The dot-coms and the VCs are all buying these these trend reports to find out what's happening with the internet. Everybody needs to know what what the trends are. So why don't you write a report? And I said, oh, yeah, some anonymous account executive working at a no-name small boutique ad agency that no one's ever heard of before is going to write some report and we're going to sell it. And he says, yeah, that's basically the idea. So on top of my day job, and anybody who works in advertising knows that that can be a pretty brutal uh, exercise, working till 8, 9 o'clock at night, sometimes, and many times on weekends. I found time in my spare hours to write this report in my apartment, just as uh, uh, I was having my second child. Uh, We already had a two-year-old at home, and so I just kind of hold myself up in this one room, teeny little room, and I wrote the first report in May of 98. We threw it up on the web. We came up with a Ridiculous. Any price, we, I don't know, $195. Let's see what happens. We'll throw it up on the wall and see what happens. And it, it just sold like hotcakes. So then we kept raising the price, 295 495 I think we ended up at around 795 And next thing you know, we're making so much money that we decided in a couple of years from, from that time period to just basically shut down the ad agency. And within about three or four months of that, we told our clients, no more retainer fees. We're not doing any more ad work for you anymore. Thank you very much for your, for your um, business all this time. And we basically just started writing. I, I started writing reports, and uh, we sold them, and that worked great until about 2001. And may, many of you have heard of the dot-com bust. And then everything kind of went to hell in a handbasket. So how did you come up with the name eMarketer? marketer? I didn't. Um, that was one of the partners. Uh, the original company name was E Stats mm-hmm. because I was looking at all these stats, and they were E Stats because electronic. Yeah. You know. So e- th- at the time, IBM had a big campaign called e-business, so e was everything. E was about in. the future. E was in. <laughs> yes. Yes. Now it's I and E and. I marketer. Yeah. Well, you know, it could have been that. (laughs) And I don't, you know what, it was just basically, it's the confluence of e or electronic or internet Mm -hmm. meets digital. So we cover, this defines what we cover, we cover everything where digital meets marketing. And that that it could include uh, m- mobile advertising, it include proximity payments, it cl- includes location-based marketing, it includes social media, video, of course, is changing. Um, I mean, anybody who has a TV set, is probably a smart TV or it's a connected TV. And so the neat thing is there was one point, I think 10, 15 years in, we're like, uh-oh, what's gonna happen if everybody understands digital and they don't need us anymore? Well, the thing is, every time you turn around, digital changes. Mm-hmm. Everybody figures out Facebook, and all of a sudden Snapchat comes around. What the hell is this Snapchat thing, and this, this, all these messages disappear? What is that all about? Mm-hmm. Who's doing this? And then artificial intelligence comes along, and some people are saying it's gonna be bigger than the internet, so we gotta get our arms around that. And then that brings out voice-activated devices, so every time you, you turn around, there is a new, shiny new object that's staring you in the face that you have to figure out, and marketers are in meetings all day long. They don't have time to figure this out. So basically we boil the ocean of all the data and all the trends and the qualitative information and we make sense of it. All the best practices and put it in one place so you can figure out what the heck you should do so you can make actionable decisions a lot faster.
1: How do you manage all of that? Because like to your point, there are so many new shiny objects, there's so much noise out there. But for every new thing that comes through, there is half the people who think that's gonna revolutionize the way we do anything, and and the other half were like this won't last a year, or five years, or 10 years. So how do you balance those two things? Yeah,
2: Actually, that really comes out of probably my learning deficit, it's never been diagnosed, but I'm not a visionary, I was the guy, remember, who said, I'm not sure this internet thing is going anywhere? Um, I didn't
1: wanna bring that up. So, so, uh,
2: But how I approached learning, is maybe somewhat unique for some people, which is that I don't understand what's going on with something, whether it's a math problem or a marketing problem, until I have I have rolled up my sleeves and looked at every single piece of data, analyzed it to death, compared it, contrasted, looked for convergence, uh, looked at the different definitions to understand why does this number match not match up with this one? Oh, well, they're using a different definition of what an internet user is. You look at uh, different methodologies, different sample sizes, and then you look at biases in the research data. And so it's basically a process of uncovering all the information there is on a given subject, putting it all together, and sorting it, and organizing it, filtering it, analyzing it, and coming up with a synthesis of, okay, the truth seems to be here, based on a cross section of all this information. And that started with my just not understanding what the heck was going on, and by looking at as much information as possible. Then you have to start building a business and scaling a business, and that means all the stuff that I was doing, we had to create individual functions for. So what do we have now? We have a team of about 30 people whose only job it is as researchers is to find this information and develop relationships with research sources where they will give us information that's not publicly available. They organize it, they put it into charts, they make this third party data kind of come to life, okay? Then we have people who are forecasters who look at all of the information out there on a given topic and they make predictions. How big uh, is, mobile payments going to be in 2019, or how many Gen Z people are going to be using voice activated devices in, uh, you know, six years from now, we, we make forecasts some 1300 a year based mm-hmm. on a, this process I had of looking at all this data and dissecting it and making sense of, uh, of disparate information. And then you have qualitative people who are doing interviews with industry leaders, with brand marketers, with agencies, with people in the ad tech world who are on the front lines of this stuff, doing this stuff, and they often have interesting insights or best practices to share. So we bring that in. Then we have analysts who boil all that up, put it all together, and and synthesize it, and put it in the form of reports. um, And cover certain topics so that you can understand everything about what's going on in uh, China with WeChat, and you can understand what's happening in Brazil with mobile payments and so on and so forth. Uh, But it's basically identifying a number of different processes, finding the right people to do it, and and having a lot of collaboration. So after 2001, the dot-com
0: bubble bursts. What happens then? How does your business shift? how do you adapt and continue to grow?
2: That's a really good question. Um, Probably the bleakest year for me in the entire career I've had at eMarketer was 2001 Um, because there were two things that happened. One is the, the bubble burst. And it wasn't just that the economy went south like in the Great Recession where it was all about the financial crisis or the housing bubble, right? This was about the internet. The internet had been hyped for years. And so all of a sudden, Everything Internet is like people don't even want to open the door. They don't want to answer the phone because it's like as I, I walked into a, a chief marketing officer at a very large consumer packaged goods company uh, a couple of years after 2001. And I asked him, so how have they done with digital? Because I was trying to sell him on, you know, buying our product. And he said, Jeff, I'll tell you, we missed the boat. He said, really, for a chief marketing officer to admit that they missed the boat on digital? Wow, that's, that's really saying something. And he said, yeah, it was the Titanic. His point being that it was really good to actually be on the sidelines and not spend too much time on it yet because it hadn't been figured out yet. Mm-hmm. And so the point was, uh, you know, Digital really hadn't gotten its legs yet, and all the promises that digital made back in 2001 eventually would come true. It would revolutionize marketing. It would revolutionize commerce. But guess what? It wasn't happening in 2001. We didn't have the broadband, for one thing. Um, not enough people were online, and we didn't understand that the basics of branding still apply. Mm-hmm. And we didn't also have the right technology uh, for for a lot of the things that we thought we could do. It was just a very poor user experience. We didn't even have search yet. So Mm. Google hadn't come around. uh, And so finding stuff online was was problematic, to say the least. (laughs) I can imagine. So over this time period,
0: how do you think the consumer adjusted to this to like kind of this digital revolution? Right? You talked oh, a lot oh, about how you yeah, you yeah. adjusted, right? And all the data mining and, and the report building that you did. How does that impact the consumer and what do you think it was from their perspective? Well, well the
2: consumer had no problem because the consumer was always just looking for a better way, and if you give me a better technology, you makes you make it easy for me to search. Thank you, Google. Uh, you make it easy to keep up with my friends. Thank you, Facebook. Uh, I remember MySpace before that. Um, there was a lot of uh, folks that were um, learned the lesson of sometimes it's good to be, you know, third to the party or fourth to the party. A fast follower. Uh, a fast follower. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Uh, but um, in 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 one sense, we were kind of a, a first first leader in that back then. This is important. The prevailing notion back in 2001 to 2003, 4, 5, for many, many years was anything on the Internet is free. Information on the Internet, journalism, news, should be free. That ended up being a bit of a problem for music. Uh, Remember Napster? Mm -hmm. I do. It was a bit of a problem for newspapers that went from about a $40 billion ad spending business to less than half that in a very short period of time. Magazines have continued to decline. Essentially, everything was being disrupted. The consumer reacted to the digital revolution by following the path of least resistance. If somebody came up with a new platform or a new technology that made doing something easier, communicating with people think texting or facebook um buying stuff you know it's removing the friction i mean it's so basic but instead of having to go to the store see if they have something in stock you find it you're not sure if the price is good you have to get in your car find a parking space go to another retailer i mean that's how, how we used to do it i mean do you remember i i do Maps, like you mm-hmm. have to pull out a physical map, pull over to the side the of the Atlas. road and, you know. <laughs> MapQuest.com. Map <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember <laughs> printing out MapQuest. Yeah. So every single innovation that was actually smart, that reduced the friction, that made it easier for people to get on with their lives and do stuff, they adopted it right away. Mm-hmm. Marketers were much slower. Why? Because fear of making a mistake, and in fact, probably the biggest, most significant um, impact that the internet has had on businesses today is this whole idea of you don't have to get it right every single time. There's this whole perfectionist mentality that we had, uh, certainly back in the '80s, and, and it, it applied to big brand markers. It applied to agencies. You don't make mistakes. Mistakes are expensive. If you put up an ad and you're spending five hundred thousand dollars on a TV commercial and the commercial sucks, nobody buys anything. Guess who gets fired? You do. So. You, you, you cannot afford to make mistakes, so you research the heck out of everything. You don't take chances. You don't take risks. You just go with the most common denominator, back to your resumes, right? So what the internet, internet did is it, it broke that whole model and said, you know what? Very cheaply, you can put something up online, whether it's a product or uh, a, a website that is uh, information, and you can see if people go there. And you can see the clicks, and you can see if people are buying stuff, and you can test, test, test all day long. Multivariate testing now is is de rigueur with uh, artificial intelligence and so on. So the internet makes it easy to fail, but it also makes it easy to succeed because it's only by failing that you move forward. You know, uh, uh, Thomas Edison, who invented the light bulb, you know, he, he didn't just come up with it one day, and here's your light bulb. Hey, I'm a rich man. No, he went through 1,000 plus light bulbs that didn't work before he came up with the one that did. Mm-hmm. Well, he got it. He, he, he would have gotten the internet right away, is that you have to tr- fail fast and, and move forward. Mm-hmm.
1: When you bring it to today, though, you said that you know things are a lot easier for us than they ever were beforehand, but I would also argue that things are also a lot noisier for the consumer. So how do you basically cut through that noise and become different in a world where I feel like my digital world feels just like Times Square, advertising yes. and messaging that's very targeted. Actually, coming at me at all times, everywhere.
2: Yeah, well, that brings up a couple of things. One of the the concepts there is that, from a consumer side, uh, I was on a panel uh, recently at an Amex event and. Um, a woman from a very large consulting firm—I'm not going to name the name—made the statement that brand loyalty is dead among young people. They, you know, younger people today, Gen Z, millennials—they don't care about brands. They'll just—they'll just—they're promiscuous. They'll just go from brand to brand. And there is some truth to that. But there's a fickleness with teenagers and young people anyway. So let's get over that, and mm-hmm. that, that may not translate into adulthood. And yes, there are more choices than ever in terms of products, in terms of websites and so on. But I argue that branding is actually more important than ever because there are so many choices. We still have risk when we buy stuff or how about the risk of wasting time on a website Mm -hmm. that's not delivering, you know, good news or, or, you know, news that's not fake, right? It's important to get that right. Um, So if you value your time, if you value your money, it's really important to pay attention to brands. And, you know, I have a, a... Eighteen-year-old who's in college. Don't tell me that he doesn't like brands. Look at look at what he wears. Mm-hmm. It's the same. I don't mm-hmm. want to mention the brand marketer, but it's the same one every single time. And he uses an Apple phone and so mm-hmm. on and so mm-hmm. on. So yes, brands are more important than ever because in a fragmented uh, media markets marketplace with so many different choices of, of products and so on, you have got to uh, uh, have the information at your disposal to make a decision about what you buy. And that's really about branding. Mm-hmm. So
0: you you mentioned, uh, we've talked a lot about data uh, yeah. during this during this interview uh, or during this discussion um, and how advertising has become so much more targeted. And I spent time this past summer working at Amazon in their sponsored products group, which is in the advertising org. I heard about that. And it's incredibly data driven. And, you know, yes. I feel like I, I walk by, uh, you know, I walk by, a Nike store, and I think about buying, you know, a Nike shoe. And then next thing I know, I'm scrolling through Instagram, and there's a Nike ad, right? Yeah. So how do you think about uh, the way the data has kind of revolutionized targeting and retargeting? And also, you know, as consumers, we put so much information on the internet. How do you think about drawing the line between what the right amount of data is and and kind of personal privacy?
2: That's a mouthful. And I'll I'll try to dissect that uh, one bit at a time. Uh, and, you know, having been in this business for 20 years and looked at, looked at probably thousands and thousands of different surveys over many, many, many years, you, you start to see certain patterns. And one of the patterns is is just looking at the consumer side of things when you talk about personalization. And, you know, we've been talking about one-to-one marketing since direct mail days, even before uh, the internet. Um, but it's it's kind of like it's aspirational. You're trying to get there, but you don't quite get there. One of the problems is Consumers will tell you they don't wanna be followed around on, the web, on websites and other places and be served up ads, particularly after they just brought the product. Like, I just bought a car, why, why am I keep getting the same car ads? Or I just bought this sweater, why do I keep get, getting these sweater ads? Mm-hmm. That's retargeting, right? Mm-hmm. People are really fed up with that. And that's a very kind of crude way of using personalization. What we really wanna do is use data to understand every individual consumer's journey or path to purchase. And again, it's going to be different for every consumer because they're going to go on different devices, different platforms, and so on. They may be at different stages of awareness of your brand, consideration, intent to purchase. Maybe they purchased it, and now it's all about loyalty. What messaging are you serving up? In what context, at what time, that's going to be relevant to them? If I've just bought your product, and you're trying to give me a, a, a deal on it, well, I already bought it, and now you're giving me a deal? That's, that's not a good experience. Mm-hmm. So, that's part of it. Um, the other part of it is that consumers will tell you in surveys, right to your face, oh my gosh, personal information is really, really important to me, and I don't want companies using that. And yet, and I'm not trying to beat up on any particular um, social media Company here, um, but it starts with F. Um, but but wait, the wait, fact it's that coming that, to me. Yes, it's, it's coming to me. me. <laughs> <laughs> but the, they, another one starts with T. Um, yeah. But the point is, is that um, I, I was just saying to the audience that we were speaking uh, with the, the MBA program is that um, we're all on these devices, we're all on these websites, and I think it's a Pew Research study that says over fifty percent of us, a majority of us, and particularly among young people, millennials we get most of our news and information from what? From Facebook and Twitter and so on. And yet, in some of those same surveys or other surveys, when they're asked, do they trust the information they find on those websites? They'll say, no. Or I I think uh, one statistic was that they think that 54% of the information that they find on Facebook is fake news. And yet, that's where they go for their news. Mm -hmm. So it's a kind of a conundrum. But the fact is... Consumers are aware of personal information. They're they're more and more concerned about it. Yet, if you give them some kind of value some kind of experience that's better whether it's a more relevant ad that you might actually be interested in that product or it is a utility some like app like a, i'm a united uh flyer and i like to know if a flight's going to be delayed mm-hmm. if you tell me that i'm on, on on a little text notification that's actually making my day better uh, so i can rearrange my plans there's just so many examples of doing it right where you're not trying to at every second or nanosecond to sell somebody something but if you're taking the time across that customer journey to use the data to serve them up something that's going to be helpful and it's maybe not an ad it's some kind of utility or it could be an entertaining experience or something that they want to share with others as i described to uh, the group earlier i call it magnetic content you can go out searching You know, for your target audience and you've segmented them and you've got the different demographic profiles and you're using programmatic buying to find these people all across the web based on what your presupposition is about who you are selling to. And it could turn out that a whole bunch of people want to buy your product that you're not even marketing to. So the other way to go about it is that's still a legitimate mean. You use programmatic buying to find people across the web. But you can also use another uh, uh, tactic which is Magnetic content where you create content that is so interesting, unique, compelling, uh, some kind of utility. Think of if, if you've got a, a haystack, this is the all the people in the population and you've got a bunch of needles in there. You're trying to reach the those people, right? Well, you pull out a magnet, those Needles will come right to the magnet. If you pull out really good content, and this is why content marketing is such a buzzword at every conference I go to, is marketers are having to be in the business of creating content, not just products, but content that people actually want to pay attention to. So they have to work with their ad agencies. They may have to work with Hollywood. They may have to work with other creative services agencies that can create content that people will actually be drawn to uh, as opposed to serving up an ad that's designed to distract them from the content they came to in the first place, mm. that is kind of jujitsu marketing where you're 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 attracting them rather than distracting them.
1: Definitely. So what does the future look like to you? I was surprised to read that you say that augmented reality is about to reach its prime time. And I'm curious what that looks like for consumers and for marketers.
2: Well, well you just said, what's the future look like? And I'm the guy who said that the internet wasn't going anywhere. So I'm we all make mistakes. of that. We all make mistakes. All I think I told you that yes. making mistakes is okay. It's okay Definitely. now. Yes. Um, the future uh, with augmented reality, um, I made a joke uh, earlier, and I make it at a lot of conferences. I said, okay, how many people... Are wearing a virtual headset right now, and no hands go up, and that's because most of us aren't walking around with one of those expensive devices, and they're kind of geeky a little bit. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, augmented reality is under our noses everywhere we go because just about anybody who has a f- cell phone, and just about all of us do, and certainly anybody in the age group of 18 to 24, and the, you know. College, MBA area is going to have a a smartphone on their hands. Well, that's an augmented reality enacted or enabled device. And so we see... Huge uptake with augmented reality, and I, I'm very excited about it because I think there's so many great use cases for marketers, and I think that the, this definitely is part of the future. And when I say future, I'm not talking about two or three years from now. I'm talking about marketers using it today. Mm. A couple of examples. Uh, one uh, I love is Sephora. Okay, so they have lipstick and, and makeup. Number for, one fan uh, right here. You, you, <laughs> You're not are you wrong. women in the audience. <laughs> and, and what they did was they created an app where... You can basically uh, try before you uh, buy. It's kind of like a test drive with this makeup, shade because we all have cameras on our phones, so we've got a picture of our face, and then we can see what that lipstick looks like mm-hmm. on us, and we can try... You know, 15 different shades of lipstick and go, that, that's the one, and then they can buy it online or they can buy it on their mobile device. Hmm. Uh, Devna, yeah, have you tried this? I
1: have. It's actually really cool. We should try it on YouTube. You can try all different things. It's really interesting that a brand like Sephora that's not known as a sort of tech innovative company is actually doing a lot of the really interesting,
2: useful, easy to use um, sort of tech innovation strategies. Right. And, and think about it. They're also taking the friction out. Mm-hmm. And, and others like Estee Lauder have even taken it further. They, they haven't made it in an app. Because people have to download an app. And mm-hmm. let's think about it. We, we, we have, probably on our phones, if you look at your phone right now, you probably have 30, 40 apps on there, right? How many do you use? Probably five. It's Google Maps. It's fa- it's, it's Facebook. It's Twitter, it's Snapchat, mm-hmm. whatever. It's the five that you use all the time. And so another marketer or retailer's app, maybe it gets downloaded and, and they use it once if you're lucky, but pretty much it's gonna get forgotten. So what Estee Lauder did is that they made it a mobile web experience so that you could also try lipstick on and different makeup shades, but you didn't have to download anything. You could just go straight to the site on mm-hmm. your mobile phone and try the lipstick on, and so they, they reduced the friction. It's back to that, that concept again. Another good one is Home Depot, and they're doing it both in the home and in the store. So let's say I wanna buy a new door, I can just hold my phone up to, you know, on my front porch and I can project onto the door that's there a whole catalog of doors that Home Depot has and see how that red door looks on my house with the paint that I have there. And I go, oh, I'm not sure I like that. Let me try the blue one. And you and your significant other can sit there and figure out which one you're gonna buy before you walk into the store. How cool is that? Versus going back and forth and back and forth and looking pallets and it's, it, it lets you see what you're gonna get before you buy it. You can do the same thing with Ikea where you can see what a piece of furniture looks like in your living room. Does it, is it gonna fit in the space? Um, Because they can actually do right down to the measurements. Does it have the right color to go with your decor? Um, And then Home Depot takes it a step further when you walk into the store, and this is really important to me because when I walk into a store, unlike a lot of people, I'm Mr. Hunt and Kill. I wanna walk in, Mm -hmm. if it's a light bulb or a stupid screw that I need, I don't wanna walk around that store aimlessly looking for some person to help me, which never shows up for some reason, (laughs) unless I don't want to buy something, and then they hound me, Mm -hmm. right? So I have a particular screw in mind that I want to buy to fix a fan, whatever it is. I walk into this massive store that's the size of, you know, six airplane hangers, and there's nobody there to help me out. They've invented an augmented reality app where I basically type in the SKU number of this particular nut or bolt I need to get. And it walks me through the store. It just basically, you know, using augmented reality, walks me through the store and takes me right to the aisle, right to the bin. And I walk out. It's taking the friction away.
1: That's really cool. But why do you think there are cool brands? I mean, I never thought I would say Home Depot is cool, but cool companies like Home Depot that are doing these things, while other brands really struggle to do basic things like have a basic functional app or have a basic functional mobile experience. Um, you know, for their website. Uh,
2: you, you'd be asking me to get into the minds of marketers, and that's, that's a, a very scary thing to do, I think, sometimes. I think it goes back to the fear. I think nobody wants to make a stupid mistake. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you how many examples that I could have given you that didn't work because either they had the right, wrong idea, this is a strategy issue, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. they just did a really poor execution. And the deal is that even on the web, execution is really hard. Think about content marketing. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, oh, well, how hard can that be? Well, just create great content. Well, creating great content, ask Hollywood. How many Hollywood movies where they put millions and millions of dollars into it, and it's a complete dud, mm-hmm. right? Well, they just wasted 40, 50, 100 million dollars. It's really hard to make good content. TV shows, same thing. How many TV shows go up, and they're down after three, four episodes? On the other hand, it's never been a better time for entertainment for consumers in terms of music when you think Pandora, Spotify, etc. And then you think of TV and movie choices. Oh, my gosh. With Netflix, Amazon Prime entering the picture. Now you've got HBO Now. And basically at home, we've got more content, good content, quality content that we can watch than ever before. And yet it's a very fragmented uh, uh audience for, for marketers to reach because we're all in different devices watching different subscription shows and it's, 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 a, it's a crazy world out there.
0: Yeah, and tracking people across devices is incredibly difficult. Back to that problem. Yes. <laughs> so a few, a few quick questions for you. Sure. Do you have a favorite brand or a brand that you admire?
2: Um, yes. I would say that uh, a brand that I admire most um, and, and it's probably because I have about three dozen of them lying around at home is Apple. You have three dozen Apples? Three dozen Apple products. Apple products. Wow. Yes. Including the watch that I'm wearing right now. Um, they design very well. Mm-hmm. They have excellent customer service. And let's, you know, when you think of the iPhone, it keeps getting better. It, it just basically uh, more apps come up, new iOS software comes up, and whatever I had yesterday could be better tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And cars are doing that too. Like my car literally—I'm told on an app—my car is going to be updated tonight at three o'clock in the morning, hmm. and there's a new feature on my car the next day. So that's pretty cool. That's that's where technology is going. Shout out to Johnny Ives. Okay, favorite ad campaign? You know, recently—that's that, really tough because I basically don't watch TV. I know I'm in marketing, um, but my wife and my four kids—we all watch. Basically, subscription programming, not pay TV or Mm -hmm. cable Mm TV. I'm talking Netflix, Amazon Prime, HBO Now, Hulu, exactly. And basically, there's no ads. So I've seen various commercials. At Where I see commercials is when I go to trade shows where I speak Mm -hmm. and I see the canned TV reels. But I forget them as soon as I've seen them. Mm -hmm. Even something like the Nike Kaepernick ad? I'm aware of it. I've read about it, but I think what's more important than an ad campaign is the experience, the whole experience. Mm. It is inclusive of the ad campaign, but it is the product delivery. It is the customer service. It is what other people are saying about it on customer reviews. Marketing today has got to be so multidimensional. It can't be just about the ad campaign, which is what it was back in the 70s and 80s when I was in the business.
1: Who do you think has the best personal brand? obviously like a celebrity or politician or
2: podcast host Uh, my favorites are actually justin and (laughs) Devna. thank you (laughs) we work
1: really hard in our personal brand is it a constant part of our friendship conversation about what is going on with your brand lately
2: you know i have a lot of favorite um i don't know celebrity brands it's really hard but um i i I, there's a lot of people that are on the speaker circuit Mm -hmm. like with me and uh i have a couple of favorites um and uh, I'll tip my hat here, this is at NYU. Um, Scott Galloway, uh, mm-hmm. who I've met uh, several times because we're on the same speaker circuit, um, is an excellent uh, presenter. Um, a very, very uh, disconcerting at times. Uh, serbic Wit, um, and I've, he's just done a phenomenal job of creating a brand of himself. Definitely. Um, and I've essentially tried to do the same with eMarker because I'm kind of seen as the public face of the company, for good or bad. When I say Amazon, you say boxes, boxes that are in front of my porch. Every Branded single boxes time or I come unbranded home. boxes? Tell, uh, mostly. Well, it's a mix, but I, I will tell you this. Does that count as direct mail? Uh, it's kind of sort of there, but it, it, I, I think of it this way: is that uh, there's one person in our household. There's six of us that has a Prime account. That's me. So can you answer for me while when I get home and there's 13, 14 boxes sometimes a day. And they all have my name on it, perfectly spelled, but everything is, nothing's for me. It's mm-hmm. all for somebody else because they're, using, they're siphoning off my uh, Amazon account. Same thing happens with Netflix. I have a son in San Francisco, another one in Boston, a daughter in England, and they're all using my Netflix account, not paying a cent. And you could say the same with all the music services as well It's all on the family plan that mm-hmm. dad's paying for. But that's the world we live in. <laughs> <The> <laughs> sounds like the question it is, will like these people eventually <laughs> buy stuff? I don't know.
1: If It makes you feel better. I'm the owner of the accounts in my family, so our Amazon, our Spotify, all these things, and I'm really upset that my family uses all of my stuff. So there's some sort of like karmic okay.
0: you know, justice okay. happening yeah. between us. Or maybe I feel a little better now. <laughs> I want, I want it to be on the record as a future employee of Amazon that I have my own Amazon account. Congratulations, just myself. It's a big moment in my life. Wow. You're grown-up now. <laughs> Officially. So uh, as we begin to wrap up, any advice you have for people, you know, aspiring marketers, particularly those coming out of business school and Stern, what would
2: you say to them now looking back on your career? Wow. There's a lot of things I would say, but uh, probably most prominent is um, look at all the data that is out there. And look, we're a data provider, so that's another source you want to look at. And we like to think that we're very truth-focused and objective, et cetera. But you can look at all the data in the world, but at the end of the day, you also have to trust your instincts and look at your own use cases, your own experiences with brands and so on, and make sure that you balance the data with your gut. Because the data often tells you what happened in the past. It's kind of like looking in a rearview mirror, and that's good, but try driving mm-hmm. a car where you're only looking in the rear view mirror. Mm-hmm. You also have to look forward, and you have to think and be inspired, and sometimes the data can help lead you there. Sometimes it's just an idea that happens to you in the shower. So, be convinced that yes, data is important, but that you have creativity. We're all born with brains that have both a left, right side, and a right side, and you need to use both sides of your brain, not just your logical, uh, in, you know, numbers-focused side. Creativity matters.
0: Absolutely. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for being here. Before we let you go, I wanted to run something by you. As you've been talking here, I think I've come up with a stage name for you. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Here we go. How about this? The Data Driven Magician.
2: Okay. I can can work (laughs) with that. It doesn't really roll off the tongue, but... You have a career marketer here. You're going to share
0: your
1: $2 suggestion with them.
2: Devna, um, I, I, I'm going to look for you to come up with the. Listen, I'm a you. finance guy. Okay. Okay. And, you. and you can have some time.
1: Thank yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. We'll get back to it. Thank Stay you so stick much. Take to your day job. <laughs> 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 have fun on Amazon. <laughs> thank Jeff, you, thank so you so much. much for
2: being here. All right, it's right. It's been a blast. Thanks, guys. Thank you.